This is the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. Rule number one is you have to believe in yourself. You're the only one who doesn't think you belong in this appointment. The prospect has already validated your existence by scheduling time with you. Get it through your head you belong here. Go in there, crush it, and close the deal. A place where sales professionals can come to learn from other sales professionals and thought leaders that have mastered their craft. The difference between a good salesperson and a best-in-class salesperson is only two minutes. By spending an extra two minutes on what you might think is a mundane task in the sales game, you separate yourselves from the pack, you grow your book of business, you close more deals, and you retain your accounts. As well as their peers who are still striving for perfection to achieve their why. I have a wife and four kids. Failure is not an option. Real sales professionals. Real stories. Real results. It's no different than being a professional baseball player. You can't be a one-trick pony. You have to be a five-tool player in order to succeed in this game. This is the Power Producers Podcast. Production redefined. Are you ready to feel the power? Hey, everybody. David and Kyle here with the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. Today, we are fortunate enough to have my good friend, Mr. Todd Tams with us from the Tams Agency in Iowa. Todd, it's great to have you on, man. I've been looking forward to this one for a while now. Me too, David. Me too. It's um, it's interesting because we had the renegade on here a couple of weeks ago, and he took us all to church. He got, uh, as only the renegade can do, very, very intense at the end. I was afraid that like he was going to come through the computer screen and rip my voice box out. Yeah. That is a gentleman that is not happy with the status quo of workers' compensation representation in the marketplace by agencies today, and he is going to fix that single-handedly. Just ask him. Absolutely. He's also not happy with the status quo of pizza, as I've learned, and <laughs> and took me to school on how to make pizza the other day the right way. So it's awesome. That's right. It's awesome. I can't, you know, I never share the artwork for the thumbnails of the podcasts before they come out. And I know that this will not be out until long after his airs. So I will just tell you, it is awesome. I've got him in his Lamborghini in the studio with him in his black sunglasses and bald head hanging out the window. And I'm sitting there munching on a piece of pizza with a pie man's pizza box in the, in the thing. It's, I love it. it's awesome. I love it. It's awesome. So listen, Kyle, you don't even know this about McDonough, but I, unless we talked about it and I don't remember, but, you know, I started seeing this Pie Man's Pizza stuff showing up on all of his social media. And I'm thinking, well, maybe Mike's like this silent investor in a pizza company or something. And that's what this is all about. It turns out, no, dude just has no. he has double ovens at his house. And he just yeah. he just randomly makes pizzas and takes them to people. No, we talked about it in our conversation with him. And it came didn't like his sister or something call him Pie Man when he was a kid or something like that. Yeah, that's, that's where right. it came from. Yeah, yeah. you're right. I've, yeah, heard it, I've heard it so uh, many times, but I mean, the, the pictures this clown posts on social media <laughs> of his pizzas, I mean, it's just... There's nothing better than a good pie. No. And you know what? I'm going to... He's he's really forcing me to show the diversity in my cooking game by getting out the pizzas on the green egg this weekend, actually. I may go ahead and pull the trigger. Tough. I mean, because you only throw them on like you get you fire that bad boy up and get it to like six hundred or something like that, and just put them on in there for like two three minutes, right? It, it if you leave them on too long, they're completely scorched. And what's cool right. is like 
in my opinion, not because I make it just because of physics and chemistry or whatever, how, how it works out, you will be hard pressed to find a better thin crust pizza that is crispier without getting soggy than the pizzas that you make on that thing. Because really? the stone is so hot when you put it on there, it's almost like it instantly sears it. You know, it's almost like it instantly puts the crust on the outside. So, so you got to get a pizza stone that it, I mean, it's essentially looks like one of those deflector plates that you got in there. It right? is the deflector plate. Oh, so you just use the same one. What you do is you turn it upside down so the deflector burn it all plate, off. Yeah, well, yeah, but the deflect the deflector plate itself when you put it in, and you should <clears> be able to do the same thing with yours. It's got the three legs that are pointing up. If you flip that yeah. upside down, you you make it to where the deflector plate's a little bit higher above the heat source. Yep. And, and the legs are what stands it up when you put them See, in those. I spots. need to get one of those. The ones that I have are basically like little half moons. So you can uh, so I can I can put something out of the direct heat and you know also leave something over top of it too if I need to. So it it it, it is useful, but I, I like what you're talking about for pizza purposes specifically. yeah that's the one that's the one that they cut that comes with well you know it doesn't come with the egg nothing comes with the egg they charge you for everything <laughs> yeah. you know shit is and, so hey crazy. listen tams has a solid barbecue game too don't let him sit there <laughs> silently i've seen the bark this gentleman produces on his <laughs> products and it is it's, legend, it's legendary i love to cook man what can i say yeah the, and, you know he puts a lot into the presentation of his social media sharing pictures too um, you know, a lot tap of, the game. It if is. it looks good, people think it tastes good. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's funny. We started posting a lot more during quarantine, and I've taken a lot of flack from some of my guy friends that they've said you need to stop posting stuff on social media because my wife wants whatever you're cooking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's um, that's always an awkward conversation to have. <laughs> so, Todd, tell everybody a little bit about who you are, where you came from, how you got into the insurance world and, and that kind of stuff. And then we're going to talk shop for a little while. All right, perfect. Um, so I swear I was born into the insurance industry. My mother and father both grew up in insurance families. My mother's father had an insurance agency for a number of years. And my dad's family had an insurance agency for a number of years. So as a little kid, I used to come in the office and and when, when you're when you're figuring out when you're 16 and what car you want to drive, we actually used to be able to quote that out of a book back in the back in the early 90s. And uh, I swore to myself I was never going to sell insurance. Went and uh, spent a few years in the fast food industry. Um, actually, Arby's, as a matter of fact, ran a bunch of restaurants and kind of. <laughs> Dave, Dave loves Arby's. He's like the number one fan. Oh my of god, Arby's. Dude, I ate Arby's for years. Years <laughs> so gross. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of Arby's <laughs> roast meat. Huge. I, I can't even tell you how many of those we cooked back in the day. It was crazy. Um, so, you know, we started having a family and yeah, the fast food industry takes a lot of time, a lot of hours, and I was just getting burned out. And so, you know, my dad had uh, said, Todd, why don't you come back and work for the office for a while, give it a chance. And I came back here kind of kicking and screaming, not really intending to make this my full-time job. And that was in 2004. Today's 2020, and here we are. So I had the uh, I had the opportunity to purchase the family business from my family back in 2012. Um, so now I'm the third generation owner of an insurance office in Western Iowa, and we've got two locations. You can only sling so many big Montanas, man. <laughs> you know, 
It's crazy. That's interesting. I didn't realize that you had done the fast food circuit, man. That's that's good. I have a fundamental belief that everybody should work in retail, restaurants, grocery stores, whatever, before they go do whatever they're going to do the rest of their life, because it teaches you a lot of skills about how to deal with the public at their absolute worst. I, the fast food industry is, is entirely overlooked. And I think sometimes people tend to look down on it. And you know, the reality is, these, these fast food managers, if you're good and you can grow sales and you can manage a bottom line profit and work with people of, you know, the, the, the kids that are just coming out of high school to management that are making this their full-time career, you can make a great living, make a lot of money and have direct responsibility over p and Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, I was 22 years old, making over well over $100,000 mm-hmm. a year running a grocery store. And I think it's the same way, man. People tend to look at those jobs as being um, less than stellar or what. I mean, I, I, unless you've been in that position, it's kind of hard to under understand, you know, but um, I, I used to just get, I, I knew when I got called to the service desk that I had the 30 second walk to get there and not know what I was getting into. And once I got there, I had about 10 seconds to diffuse whatever was going on, you know, before it just got to be really bad. And, you know, I the store that I ran originally was in a part of Birmingham, Alabama, that was not necessarily the prime location to be running, right? And we had a lot of diversity. There was a ton of racial tension in the store. And here I am, a young white kid that came in to be the store manager and you know, the deck was allegedly stacked against me from the very beginning of doing it. And so um, thankfully, people saw that I was sincere, that I would bust my can, that I would work side by side with them, that I would take the time to learn their job and understand it, knew about their families, ask about their kids by name every day when I talked to them and all of those things. And it taught me a lot of skills about how to relate to people that I still use today. And I mean, I don't underestimate at all the value of me being in that position. You know, I'll never forget it. When they gave me the store, the guy that was the retail operations superintendent, Gary Doss, he may hear this because I'm connected to him on Facebook now, but you know, he told me, David, we're going to give you this store because we don't think you can screw it up any worse than it already is. And so (laughs) there's a heck of a vote of confidence, right? (laughs) You know, but when you think about it and how I talk to people about my time in retail, you know, again, I think even in some cases, my own family doesn't really understand what it takes to have the total PL responsibility that you have and the human resources and all of those things to successfully run one of those operations. But I essentially was 22 running a $15 million a year business for all practical purposes from wall to wall. And when I moved upstream, you go to super targets, those are over a hundred million a year. So, you know, that's nothing to sneeze at, you know? So the people, for those of you out there that want to go back and bitch about something that didn't go right in the store, don't talk down to that person because they probably got enough money to buy and sell you over three times over, you know? And that's what, that's how I used to get through to it. I used to sit there and thinking, (laughs) you think that you're talking down to me, but I'm sitting here getting paid six figures to listen to this crap. And you're probably just in between shifts, getting ready to go to your second job because you you're overextended on debt. So whatever. I mean, we could talk about that, you know, all the time, but I do think that it does a really good job of equipping you 
for how to diffuse things or how to you know deal with situations that we deal with now because inevitably you have to learn to be quick on your feet specifically at the point of sale right so what's going on in covid up in Iowa man i mean i know that we've you know you and i go back and forth on social media and i i see comments and things like that but I, honestly I haven't really seen you say too much about the current environment where you're at. I mean, how are you guys making it through professionally and what's that doing for the agency right now? So the, the town that we live in is, is about 8,200. And uh, if, if you've ever enjoyed a piece of bacon, it probably came from the, the, the packing plant we have here in Denison. Um, but you know, we shut, who is it? Smithfield. Who, who is it? Oh. It's, yeah. I was going to, yeah. Get... Smithfield. Yeah. Well, obviously, well, I've enjoyed had, plenty of bacon in my day. Yeah. So, I mean, well, there was a, they had a rough go. The, the plants all over, I think, have had a rough go. I don't know that we've seen anything here in Denison to the level of some of the other plants around. Um, so there's 20,000 people in our county, approximately. We've had 400 cases. Uh, you know, it's it's panic more than anything. You know, it's interesting because I saw a thing that was posted. I'm in this group that Jason Deniston started for independent agents that like to barbecue and I want to be part I need of to group. get I, I was going to say I need to add <laughs> I, I when I recorded my podcast with him last week I said I needed to add several of you guys to it and then I just forgot to do it but um he posted something in there that if you were able to slaughter and butcher your own hog you could buy whole hogs for a hundred bucks a piece right now that's insane. So the, the, if you're raising hogs, you're raising cattle right now. There's no money in it at the farmer level. Um, hmm. Every day they're losing money and nobody wants to buy their product from them. And even the, 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 the kill or the slaughter in our plant has been cut in half price. And as a matter of fact, the local, the local um, uh, butcher shops here, they are booked out until October. What I last heard. I mean, they're going yeah, to kill it right now. I could I could very easily butcher the hog or you know do what I needed to do to get the meat off of it. Not a chance I'm slaughtering that thing. No way. My kids <laughs> would have nightmares for years to come. You know, just with, face Facebook Live that yeah, bad boy. Why does Daddy have a machete in the backyard chasing <laughs> a pig around? You know what I mean? But it, it, I just can't believe the value that you can get right now um, if you have the ability to do that. You know and it's going to be interesting to see what it does to the prices in the stores. I know ground beef is already through the roof. It's like over seven bucks a pound at this point. So yeah, and there's, I think there's a lot of banks from the the local producers in our area. They're not seeing $8 a pound. I mean, they sold at the low, um, the, the packers and the processors are the ones making the, the serious money right now. Yeah. That's the problem because they don't have the real capacity to process the way they used to. So it's taken, it's taking the supply out of the marketplace and the demands forcing the the rates up. So it's, it's, you know, and obviously people are going to buy it, you know, we're not going to stop eating hamburgers all of a sudden, but it's going to have an effect on a lot of different things. So I know that you go deep into workers comp and we've had plenty of conversations about that. How did you, how did you pick that or how did you decide that was a good way for you to go out and generate new business? That's a good question. Um, you know, I, with any, my, my, my path when I started was you knock on every door and write everything that you possibly can, personal, farm, commercial, and until you can actually generate some revenue where you can pay yourself and pay all the bills. And 
Well, and based off the size of your town, what did you do after your first few months? <laughs> I mean, you know, you're you're having to figure out ways to do business outside of your your general vicinity that you're in, right? Yeah, so, yeah. But- well, then even in small town, there's a lot of loyalty. I've been with so and so for so many years, and I'll keep you in mind when they retire. But no matter what, you're not going to have a chance at that piece of business, no matter how good you are, because of the the loyalty and the friendship that they have in a small town. Um, so I just found out that I liked workers' compensation. I like workers' compensation where I could help people just simply reduce costs. And most, like, it's sad to say, but most agents don't really take the time to dig in and do the mod master, uh, find out what's causing the pain points, find out why you've got a claim where uh, it's a $4,000 loss, but $300 of it's lost time. And it's counting 100% on their experience mod rather than 70, you know, reduce 70%. Because they didn't have a return to work program in place. And I mean, all these little things, when you sit down and you say, here's how that could have been done a little different. Here's how you can take better care of your employee. And here's how you save money in the long run and flow cash through to the bottom line. It's an easy conversation to have. It really is. It's extremely easy. It's not overly difficult to learn (laughs) either. You just have to be willing to do it. And that's the problem, right? I think that so many people are whoring themselves out to be insurance salesmen and sell products that they don't take the time to realize you really have to solve a problem. And I get on these kicks when I put my content out about different things that I think need to be addressed in the marketplace. And that's one of them right now. Everybody and their brother is going to be shopping, period, whether they realize it now or not. Every business is going to be vulnerable. And if you go in and all you're going to do is sell on price, you have a chance of writing business more than normal because you're going to have more people willing to hear what you have to say. But if you have somebody that understands a value proposition that is going to come in before or after you, you're going to get annihilated. You're going to absolutely get annihilated. And that's where I think agents need to shift their focus and and quit going out and focusing on price, 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 or policy, policy, policy. I was talking to somebody last week, and we, we were going back and forth about how agents will go into the point of sale and just do nothing. They'll, they'll walk in the door, and they immediately know the answer to everything, right? They Well, what you need here is you need this endorsement, or you need to go with this carrier, or you need... You haven't even taken the time to find out what's really going on yet, you know? And I think part of the issue is with the internet being able to give us so much information at our fingertips, we go in with preconceived notions and we try and make the narrative fit what we've researched ahead of time, as opposed to being um, trained enough mentally to know the information that we found in research, but to ask open-ended questions that either validate our suspicions or redirect them to what really is the cause of the issue. And I can tell you, I've made that mistake before myself earlier in my career where I would go in and I've done a bunch of research and I think I know what the problem is. And then all of a sudden when I get in there, they're like, well, you know, that could be what happens to a lot of places, but that's not necessarily what's going on here. Here's what's really happening in this company. And all of a sudden I'm dead in the water, right? Because I thought I knew what the issue was and I didn't. And I've gotten to the point now where I understand that if I frame my questions right based around what I've been able to learn through public domain research, I can validate or redirect, but I'm prepared now when I prepare for a meeting to go in and know if the answer is this, then I go this direction as opposed to, you know, just trying to force my own agenda going in. And I I think that we've trained people that that's what's going to happen is we're just going to go in 90 days before renewal. We're going to talk about the insurance portion of the relationship and that's it. 
you know, you win, you lose. It's the law of numbers at that point. And if you're, if you're an agent in the sales model, that's how you have to do it. Right. When you go over the technical side and the consulting side, it's a whole different conversation because you're not going in there to pitch insurance. You're going in there to seek to understand what it is they really need. You know, we, yeah, I agree. We picked up an account last year. Uh, the, the, the CEO of the company called and said, uh, Hey, we're taking bids. Do you want to be included in the, in the bid package? And, uh, I said, sure. Send us your stuff. We'll take a look at it. Five agents out there or five people competing on this account. And, uh, they were with a very large national brokerage and I get their stuff and their workers' compensations in the assigned risk pool. <laughs> and it's crazy that nobody talks about that stuff. It, it, it's just like completely left alone. Is, it, is Iowa the same as Florida where it's state mandated rates? So it's state mandated rates for the, the, the assigned risk pool or the non-assigned risk pool. Um, the yeah. assigned risk pools, you know, 25% higher than the standard market. So I just said, Hey, I'd like to come up and talk to you. Can we do that? You know, back when you could go inside and meet people in person. And, uh, we sat down with, uh, the CEO and the CFO. And I just said, talk to me about why you're sending this out to five people. What are you hoping to do? And why are you in the assigned risk pool? And the CEO says to me, what do you mean assigned risk pool? <laughs> That's crazy. And I said, you're in the assigned risk pool. You're paying 25% higher, you know, that, than you should. And I walked through the whole narrative with him. And I said, your real concern should be why you're in the assigned risk pool and how are you going to find a broker to take you out of there? Because you could save a lot of money simply by just going to a standard market. It was a formality to get the, the board to approve our AOR after that because nobody, mm -hmm. not, not one agent, not one other agent out of the five had even talked to him about how you should get out of the assigned risk pool or even put forth a risk management plan to help monitor their claims, do some training, do something. Did they have a bunch of claims or, or what was, what was going on with it? They did have a bunch of claims and uh, they were high dollar claims, a lot of back injuries because they were lifting people the wrong way. It's, it's a, it's a public transportation company. So mm. uh, a lot of that was just, just simple training that, that they needed. Out, out of curiosity, why was a public transportation company lifting people? I'm sorry. They, just they, su suplexing people. They, they transport, they Get transport in. people. Okay, there we so, go. It's I, was, a I was a little bit lost there. Transportation company. Yeah, like I was taking them to and from doctor's appointments and whatnot. Yeah, nobody, yeah. nobody ever lifts me when I get in public transportation. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, uh, it, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, man. And you know, it's interesting because I was in one of the Facebook groups for agents, and there was a guy that basically was—I don't know if he was looking for advice. Sometimes. People aren't necessarily clear in exactly what their point is when they post on social media, but essentially it was, it was very similar. I've got a meeting, there's four other brokers involved and I've worked really hard to get in front of these people. And now I found out that they're talking to four other people. There's only a limited number of markets, you know, what, what should I do or whatever? And I don't even know that they even ask what they should do. And immediately everybody and their brother jumps on the bandwagon, kill the meeting. You don't compete against other people, blah, 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 blah. And my answer was completely different. I'm like, dude, take the first meeting, you know, take the first meeting. If you get in there and in 10 minutes you decide, okay, this guy is, or this lady, whatever I'm dealing with is not going to make, it's not going to make sense for me to work with them. You can decide that then. But what you're doing is you're completely eliminating your ability to go in and demonstrate value and to educate that prospect. And it's crazy that you even bring this up because literally when I got to the work this morning, 
I recorded a video on why we have to educate our prospects. We talk all the time about educating our clients on what they, we need from them to do business with us, but nobody takes the time to educate a prospect about what it takes to do business with us. And you have to do that. And my whole point in, 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 in responding to this guy was take the meeting and educate them as to why market selection doesn't make sense. You know, competitive bidding doesn't make sense. Broker selection makes sense. Let all of us pitch to you. Let's talk about how we're going to do uh, what we do for you and then pick which one, which horse you want to ride. Let them handle the negotiation and placement of coverage because right now you got five people that are going to be in there blindly competing against each other in limited markets with no understanding of coverage terms or price that the other people have. And no offense to you, Mr. Prospect, but you're the least educated on this process of what happens on our end of it, but yet you're controlling the whole thing. And you're not putting yourself in a position to get the ultimate success at the end because of how you're going about it. Here's why we we recommend. And then just walk them through and educate it. Guess what? One of two things is going to happen. They're going to agree with you or they're not. Newsflash, people, not everybody's going to agree with you. But it's just like the quote from Wayne Gretzky, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Why aren't you going at least to the first meeting? You know, I'm a huge fan of not wasting my time. But I'm going to go to the first meeting every time because you never know what's going to come from it. So you ended up getting that deal. I mean, what? How's it worked out since? I mean, I'm assuming that things are going well. Did you get them out of the assigned risk? Not goal? yet. It's a tough class of business, and we're still having a few claims. But uh, we've got a path in place, and we've got a plan in place with the ultimate goal, and we all know what the end result's going to be of that. And that that's that's all I told them. Let's let's find a way to reduce cost simply. I mean, simply just by getting you out of the assigned risk pool, let alone the claims process and everything else that goes along with that. And we can find a dividend, a carrier that has a dividend plan, they'll save even more money. So it's uh, you know, but going back to your point, taking the first meeting, there are five of us. I just wanted to go up and find out where their head was at, what exactly it is they were looking for, and if we're a good fit. And not every not every meeting we have is going to end up in sale. And you, like you said, not every person is going to agree with what we want to do or the way that we want to do business. We still have people that we come across that want to shop every single year and the disservice they're doing to themselves in the marketplace, they don't even know. I mean, because so many carriers will see that same submission year after year after year and it's an auto decline. When when they're doing that, when when they have that kind of behavior, what how do you explain that to them to try to get them to understand that you know why that's such a disservice to them? How do I explain it? Yeah, um, we simply talk about how underwriters. So our pitch for most people is, if we're going to market you, we're going to take you on as a new client. We're going to go to market for you the first year, and outside of that, we don't intend to remarket you. Uh, every year, maybe three or five, but we're going to keep you with the exact same carrier, not only to build loyalty, but to build longevity. And I want my carriers to know that when I come to them with a piece of business, I want them to be as aggressively priced as possible. And I really want them to go after it if it's a good fit. And I tell them, or I tell the prospect, if I'm going to send every single piece of business every single year to that underwriter who's already overworked, underpaid, doesn't have enough hours in the day, when she sees your piece of business and maybe it's got some claims or maybe it's not in their appetite, they're just going to auto decline and move on as opposed to, mm-hmm. I can't sell an account to a company that markets every single year, 
every single time. It it's too much work. You know, it, it's crazy because the average decision maker has no idea that they are damaging their own reputation in the marketplace. And I I have that exact same conversation all the time. They don't realize, you know, and, and I, I just ask them, look, let me ask you a question. You do understand that if you have 20 different underwriters look at your account every single year, 19 of them lose. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's just the way that it is. And I was I was having a conversation with somebody and, and I told them, you know, one of the one of the best places that I get referrals is from underwriters that have lost. Now, I realize that the carrier people that may or may not be listening to this don't want to hear that. But here's a fun fact. You have an underwriter that sharpened the pencil and feels like they've got the best program, best pricing and everything. And all of a sudden they don't get that business. They have really long memories. So they're either going to auto decline you going forward, or they're going to do what I'd like them to do and pick up the phone and call me and say, Hey, I just quoted this account. I didn't get it. I really would like for you to go after this with reckless abandon, whatever you need, you let me know. I will write this next year. Just get the audience and go do it. And agents don't, I mean, maybe they do, maybe they don't know that's what's going on, but I mean, they, they got to quit gaming the system with these underwriters because at some point you're going to need some of the ones that aren't willing to entertain the opportunity anymore because of how you've presented it. Most underwriters I know are charged with growing their book of business every year. And when you build that relationship with them, it's, it's sad for me to hear that so many shops send them a piece of business saying, hey, I need you to block the market, send me a declination letter. I mean, that's that's just the game that gets played all the time. But there's a lot of cases where that underwriter really wants to go after and write that piece of business and may do a better job than the current carrier. But some of these large ones are just, you know, blocking the market and hurting the client in the long run. You got to take care of the people. You got to take care of the clients. End of period. End of story. You know- yeah, and it's crazy because, you know, again, when you go into the whole, there's going to be four or five other agents. Newsflash, again, people, I absolutely love it if you're going to be comparing me to four or five other agents. That's exactly what I want you to do. I want you to let me come in and talk about my value proposition. And if you buy into what I say and what we're capable of doing for you and the results we've gotten for other people, we're going to win way more than we lose. I mean, that's the nature of the beast, right? With us, because and you're you're in the same boat, Todd. When you go in with the consultative approach, and you're having you're talking about return to work and the different things that you talk about that are low hanging fruit from our model and the way we go after things, you're going to differentiate yourself in such a way from the status quo that they're either going to immediately gravitate towards you and buy into what you're saying and realize that you know what you're talking about, or they're going to think you're absolutely nuts and they're going to continue to do things the way they've always done. Guess what? Either way, they're doing me a favor. I either get the business or they remove me from consideration. And I didn't want to have them as a client anyhow, because it was just going to be the same thing year after year after year. And it's amazing how many of those people reach back out if if I choose to decline to participate or they just decide that they wanted to continue with the status quo. Guess what? That year they have another bad year. Who's the first person in the Rolodex they call? Maybe I should have talked to that guy that came in and was talking to me about total cost of risk. We should talk about that a little more because I don't think it's hard even in our agency to go to that meeting, realize they're not a good fit, and then walk away. I took a call last night from a guy that had posted in IAOA. Um, He posted that he had an issue. He needed some help. 
he had a he, he specifically wanted to talk to a, a, an agent that had experience with accounts of five hundred thousand dollars or more in premium. I saw that post. And yeah. Somebody tagged me. I answered, and I ended up he he shot me a private message, and I spent about thirty minutes on the phone with him. And the long and the short of this is that he this guy works for a company that has some ridiculous number of locations worldwide. Yeah, the it, it, it's uh, restaurants, probably something like Benihana or something like that. It's not, but it, it, it was teppanyaki style table side cooking and all of that. And everything boiled down to the fact that this client came to him and said that they didn't want him to, they, they weren't happy with him. They didn't feel like he was bringing value and he was concerned he was going to lose the account. Well, when I get on the phone with him, the value that the client wanted him to bring was they wanted to negotiate, they wanted his agency to negotiate the terms of a lease that they were working on in Manhattan that required them to carry a $10 million umbrella. They didn't feel like they should carry a $10 million umbrella and they didn't want to pay for it. So they expected him as the agent to negotiate with the landlord to remove the requirement for a $10 million umbrella. And so he's explaining this to me. And I said, listen, you know, out of curiosity, have you explained to them that that's actually a relatively low requirement for Manhattan? I mean, when I've had clients who have done business with the city of New York, the lowest they'll take for an umbrella is 25 million. I mean, it's, it's crazy. And I said, you know, what's driving this? And he said, well, you have to understand there's cultural differences. This is an Asian-based company. They don't view... Insurance is something that's of any kind of value to them. They buy it because they have to, and that's it. And I said, so they're under the impression that if they have a claim for a million dollars, that no one is going to sue them for more than that million dollars. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, and we started going through all of this stuff. And, and at the end of the conversation, I said, look, man, I said, after talking to you, it's really obvious to me, you know exactly what you should do. I'm not telling you that it's easy for you to do it, but these people don't value your advice. They don't value your professional opinion, and they're simply wanting to buy a product from you or not and, and, and not have to comply with the lease requirements. Truthfully, you should have been offering them a $10 million umbrella to begin with and not hinge it on the lease because that's what they probably need based on the number of locations they have. And then he proceeds to tell me that, well, there's a different agent that handles their locations on the West Coast. And, they're t- and I'm like, dude, come on, man. You know, what are you doing? And I re- and this was a huge chunk. It, it, number one, it blew my mind. It was a single location. And the GL on this restaurant was $150,000 in premium for a single hmm. location. Wow. And, but but I, I, t- I told him, and he said, that's standard. That's standard for class of business and specifically where they're at. And I said, I realize that I can sit back with no emotional attachment whatsoever and give you completely unbiased advice. And it's very easy for me to do that. It's not my agency that would be losing the revenue, but at the end of the day, you just need to go to these people and say, look, this is what you should have because this is the correct thing for you to do. It has nothing to do with your lease requiring you to have it. I'm not in a position where I can agree with having this removed because I would be giving you bad advice. And I told him, they're the first ones that are going to have you negotiate to get rid of that. And I said, have you ever offered it to them before? Because, you know, it, my concern became, 
okay, number one, if you've never offered them an umbrella before and told them they needed a five or $10 million umbrella because of their expansion plans across the US, you are missing your duty to offer. And if something were to happen, they could come back against you and say, you know, you should have offered us an umbrella and you have no evidence that you did and no evidence that they rejected it. And I said, but you kind of flip that to make it even worse when you consciously make a decision to go negotiate to have what you know is the correct coverage for them removed from a lease requirement. Now it's like you made a conscious effort to help them not have that. And you're going to be not looked upon very favorably if anything goes down. And by the way, if you think these people are going to step aside and stand up and say, nope, we told him we didn't want it. He did everything he could to have it removed. We're going to stand behind him 100% because he <laughs> did exactly what we asked. You're kidding yourself. you know. And I think that we get clouded that way, man. Agents are so clouded by the premium and the commission that they don't make good decisions. And I asked him, I said, if you step back right now and you looked at every other account in your book of business, is this the biggest one? And he said, yeah, by a landslide. I said, okay, if you look at all of your book of business, do these people match the same value system as all of your other clients? Do they respect your your um, professional opinion the same way that your other clients do? And every answer was no, 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 no. And I said, why are you wasting your time, man? You're just getting paid more for bigger headaches. And I would imagine that the profitability that you have on this account, by the time you look at how much work you have to do to try and keep them happy, makes no sense at all for you to represent that. Figure out who you're going to represent and only represent that type of client, period. You know, I did a, did a video and I use the example all the time. Anytime I go to a prospect meeting, I envision a conference room with an empty chair at the table. All the other chairs are filled by my book of business. Does the person I talk to in this prospect meeting deserve that empty chair at the table with everybody else that I represent? If the answer is yes, then we can have a really good meeting. If the answer is no, we don't bring them into the agency. And Kyle will tell you every single account that I have said, literally, these are good. This is going to be a problem is always a problem. Always. Yep. We all know it. And, and even as much as I'd like to think that we have some relatively refined processes, we still make we still fall into that trap occasionally, but you can't let yourself be clouded by that stuff. And I think that's where agents really screw up is they don't have the balls to say no. I agree. I, I think you know it's 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 tough when you're looking at you know what what they're going to be bringing in versus matching it against what your value prop is. But it's something you have to do if you want to if if you want to continue to grow and do it the right way. It's not always an easy decision to make, but I 100 percent agree with you. I, I, I had to tag onto that too. I mean, I think in your book, you talk about find, define who your client is. And when you're young and you start out or you need revenue, you take on anything that you can. In hindsight, that's the worst thing you can do. Be laser focused in your approach. Find people that you want to do business with. Um, I can think in my experience of two times, two times that I, I compromised my judgment to write a sale. And both of those cases, I got burned and I got burned big. Mm hmm. And never, never yeah, again I, as I go forward. I mean, take the first meeting. If they don't see you as valuable, if they don't like what you have to say, that's okay. It's all right to leave and walk out that door. Find people. That, I, I like working. I, I enjoy what I do. I enjoy the clients that I have. Life's too short to work with people you don't want to work with. <laughs> True. Well, you know, that, and that's the beauty of what we do, right? That's the difference between what we do in retail is in retail, you can't really control who walks through your front door. In this industry, we have every ability to do that. 
and that's that's why I'm such a huge proponent of defining who your ideal prospect is going to be and then only populating your pipeline with those types of accounts. You eliminate all of the ability that you have to make that bad decision because you've, you know, either qualified or disqualified people before you ever put them into the the sales uh, funnel. And I think that's a that's a uh, there's no reason for that not to happen, right? We all know it. We we know what that's going to look like from the second you engage with somebody the first time. Absolutely. And I have no yep. I I have no problem telling them. Like I I, at this point, my time is valuable to me. And if I go in there and somebody's going to, you know, give me some smart remark about, well, we'll just see how good your pricing is or whatever else, I'll get up and leave and say, listen, I, I apologize, but apparently I, I I owe you an apology for not doing a good job of demonstrating what we really do. Uh, while price is certainly a factor in total cost of risk, it's not the one thing we focus on. If all you're concerned about is your insurance premiums, you should probably talk to an insurance salesman and not a risk manager. Yeah. <laughs> and they did, and and they do, but it, it, it's it's a never ending you know cycle of the same thing. So, you know, what have you guys done? So, you know, navigating COVID, obviously, you know, you made the comment earlier that you can't go out and and meet with people in person and all of that, and certainly we've experienced the same. What have you done to try and generate new business revenue in the downtime? So for so for us out here, uh, Western Iowa, we made the decision probably two years ago to really kind of invest in technology. Um, it was real easy for everybody to transition to work from home. We've all got laptops, um, can work remotely. Um, we went into COVID probably with a three to four week backlog of work that we've been able to clear up and get through and push through now. And what we're internally working on is refining some of our processes, the way that we do things. And uh, I, I'm pleased to announce that uh, this week, we actually just hired a full-time marketing person for our office to build our online social there media. You, go. I, you know, they say treat technology as a team member. I'm going to treat marketing as a team member. And I want that person to be on there making sure our social media presence is 100%. We're doing stuff locally. We're doing stuff regionally. Um, and uh, we're doing SEO, Google AdWords. I want to use our website to a better capability than what we currently have. I want to make sure that people know that they could submit requests via our website. Um, I really want to streamline that and, and target those type of people for TAM's agency. Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting because this is the absolute perfect time if you want to work on marketing projects or building your online presence. I, I joke with Ryan Hanley about it and tell them that, you know, this is the absolute worst time possible for you to have started a scratch agency unless you're Ryan Hanley with a ridiculously strong content game, right? Oh, his content so, is off the charts lately, man. He just cranks them out daily. Well, and that's the whole thing, right? And so that's that's what I told Ryan when, you know, and we talk several times a week, actually, you know, probably daily, but... um you know, I told him, I said, just stay the course, dude. Right now, what you're doing is you're creating the perception six months from now, the perception will be, oh yeah, Rogue Risk, I know them. You know, and I mean, it, that's not a ho-hum deal. That's a really hard thing to do when you're starting a scratch agency that's a brand that, that people don't necessarily know about. But if you can if you can get that stuff out there and have it, uh, you know, being warehoused on your website, 
you're doing nothing except investing in the future in a time where everybody else is busy, you know, spouting off the Zywave content on COVID. And it's literally hundreds of agents with the same slicks and everything else that they're putting out there. And that's why I think that he's, you know, doing the right thing. He's, I hope he's doing the right thing. He's following my advice a lot of the time. And so I'm, I'm trusting that it's going to work, but I mean, you know, he's taught me a lot in terms of how to streamline content production. Right. So for me, I had to, we've been busy. Like I've been busy since I opened the doors of Florida risk. And the, the number one excuse that everybody gives is I don't have time. I don't have time. I don't have time. Guess what? I don't have time. And it's not that I don't have time because I'm doing non-revenue generating tasks. I don't have time because we're writing business and I don't need the content to go out and generate leads for me. But I also understand I need to have that because at some point the well's going to dry up or at least it's going to slow down from where it is right now. And I need to be able to have that kind of presence to where I, you know, even if I just go in and talk to somebody and they say, Hey, I have a problem with this. I could say, Oh, I wrote an article about that a couple months ago. I'll send you the link when I get back. Boom. Instant credibility. And so Mm -hmm. one of the things that I've learned in the way that I'm doing this, and by the way, if you're an agency trying to figure out how to do content, you need to stop everything you're doing on the side, put the candy crush down and listen to what I'm saying right now, because this is extremely important. I learned real quick with, you know, from what Ryan taught me that it makes all the sense in the world to lead with video. And I know that you have got a top shelf video rig for you, you know, in your office. And, you know, what I found out, Todd, is that you don't have to have all the time in the world to do the blogging and everything else. So I'm leading everything that I do from a content standpoint, 100% with video, because if I do the video first, it's easy for me to do. I can knock out, you know, three and four minute videos. I can do, you know, I don't want to get overboard, but I could do five or six of them a day. It doesn't take me an incredibly long amount of time to edit them in Adobe Premiere. I upload them to Clipscribe. You know, if I'm too backed up to do that, I'll send them to Splashio and they'll do all the transcriptions for me. But I can send them over to Clipscribe and Clipscribe will put the subtitles in. I can format everything and I do it in real time. With Splashio, it's typically a 24-hour turnaround time. But then I can also take that video and I can send it to Rev. And for $1.25 a minute, I can have a human being get me 99% accuracy on taking all of the wording from that video and putting it into a Word document for me. So I have an automatic blog post. So literally, I do the video, I upload it and do the things that I do on the different websites. And by the time I'm done, I, I I get the the word doc back. I throw in the sub you know the the subheadings. I title it. I put it into Grammarly to make sure that it's gonna um, you know it's grammatically correct because how I talk and how I write are two completely different things. But that's how Hanley is getting that much content out there is because he understands the systems well. So I finally decided I'm really gonna hammer down and, and produce content during COVID. So I have done a ton of videos on stuff for Florida Risk that aren't even anywhere close to going on the website yet because I'm not going to put them up all at one time. Google doesn't like that. But I had like 50 videos transcribed into blog posts for 150 bucks, and I had them all back in under an hour. That's like, crazy. That's nuts, man. So it's instant content strategy. If people aren't doing that, 
and take, you know, agents are cheap. The majority of them, right? Anybody that's in killing commercial, not cheap. And, and I know that. And that's one of the things about creating a community and making sure you have like-minded people in that community. But if agents understand, you know, there's a lot of people here, $1.25 a minute, that's crazy. That's And they're going to start running the numbers of how much that actually equates to an hour. Well, I'm going to run the math for you. It's $75 an hour. I don't work for $75 an hour. I'm not, I'm not ever going to work for $75 an hour. So why are you, you know? Look, don't don't sit here and try and be smarter. This is the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. Rule number one is you have to believe in yourself. You're the only one who doesn't think you belong in this appointment. The prospect has already validated your existence by scheduling time with you. Get it through your head you belong here. Go in there, crush it, and close the deal. A place where sales professionals can come to learn from other sales professionals and thought leaders that have mastered their craft. The difference between a good salesperson and a best-in-class salesperson is only two minutes. By spending an extra two minutes on what you might think is a mundane task in the sales game, you separate yourselves from the pack, you grow your book of business, you close more deals, and you retain your accounts. As well as their peers who are still striving for perfection to achieve their why. I have a wife and four kids. Failure is not an option. Real sales professionals. Real stories. Real results. It's no different than being a professional baseball player. You can't be a one-trick pony. You have to be a five-tool player in order to succeed in this game. This is the Power Producers Podcast. Production redefined. Are you ready to feel the power? Hey, everybody. David and Kyle here with the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game today. We are fortunate enough to have my good friend, Mr. Todd Tams with us from the Tams Agency in Iowa. Todd, it's great to have you on, man. I've been looking forward to this one for a while now. Me too, David. Me too. It's um, it's interesting because we had the renegade on here a couple of weeks ago, and he took us all to church. He got, uh, as only the renegade can do, very, very intense at the end. I was afraid that like he was going to come through the computer screen and rip my voice box out. He that is a gentleman that is not happy with the status quo of workers' compensation representation in the marketplace by agencies today, and he is going to fix that single-handedly. Just ask him. Absolutely. He's also not happy with the status quo of pizza, as I've learned, and, <laughs> and took me to school on how to make pizza the other day the right way. So it's awesome. That's right. It's awesome. I can't, you know, I never share the artwork for the thumbnails of the podcasts before they come out. And I know that this will not be out until long after his air. So I will just tell you, it is awesome. I've got him in his Lamborghini in the studio with him in his black sunglasses and bald head hanging out the window. And I'm sitting there munching on a piece of pizza with a pie man's pizza box in the, in the thing. It's, I love it. it's awesome. I love it. It's awesome. So listen, Kyle, you don't even know this about McDonough, but I, you know, unless we talked about it and I don't remember, but, you know, I started seeing this Pie Man's Pizza stuff showing up on all of his social media. And I'm thinking, well, maybe Mike's like this silent investor in a pizza company or something. And that's what this is all about. It turns out, no, dude just has no. he has double ovens at his house. And he just yeah. he just randomly makes pizzas and takes them to people. No, we talked about it in our conversation with him. And it came didn't like his sister or something call him Pie Man when he was a kid or something like that. Yeah, that's, that's where right. it came from. Yeah, yeah. you're right. 
I've yeah, heard it, I've heard it so uh, many times, but I mean, the, the pictures this clown posts on social media <laughs> of his pizzas, I mean, it's just... There's nothing better than a good pie. No, and you know what? I'm going to... He's he's really forcing me to show the diversity in my cooking game by getting out the pizzas on the green egg this weekend, actually. I may go ahead and pull the trigger. Stuff. I mean, because you only throw them on, like, you get, you fire that bad boy up and get it to like 600 or something like that and just put them on in there for like two, three minutes, right? It, it if you leave them on too long, they're completely scorched. And what's cool right. is, like, in my opinion, not because I make it just because of physics and chemistry or whatever, how, how it works out, you will be hard pressed to find a better thin crust pizza that is crispier without getting soggy than the pizzas that you make on that thing. Because really? the stone is so hot when you put it on there, it's almost like it instantly sears it. You know, it's almost like it instantly puts the crust on the outside. So, so you got to get a pizza stone that it, I mean, it's essentially looks like one of those deflector plates that you got in there. It right? is the deflector plate. Oh, so you just use the same one. What you do is you turn it upside down so the deflector burn it all plate, off. Yeah, well, yeah, but the deflect the deflector plate itself when you put it in, and you should <clears> be able to do the same thing with yours. It's got the three legs that are pointing up. If you flip that yeah. upside down, you you make it to where the deflector plate's a little bit higher above the heat source. Yep. And, and the legs are what stands it up when you put them See, in those. I need pots. to get one of those. The ones that I have are basically like little half moons. So you can uh, so I can I can put something out of the direct heat and you know also leave something over top of it too if I need to. So it it it, it is useful, but I, I like what you're talking about for pizza purposes specifically. yeah that's the one that's the one that they cut that comes with well you know it doesn't come with the egg nothing comes with the egg they charge you for everything <laughs> yeah. you know Shit is and, hey listen tams has a solid barbecue game too don't let him sit there <laughs> silently i've seen the bark this gentleman produces on his <laughs> products and it is it's, legend, it's legendary i love to cook man what can i say yeah the, you know he puts a lot into the presentation of his social media sharing pictures too um, you know, a lot Tap of the game. It if is. it looks good, people think it tastes good. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's funny. We started posting a lot more during quarantine and I've taken a lot of flack from some of my guy friends that they've said, you need to stop posting stuff on social media because my wife wants whatever you're cooking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's um, that's always an awkward conversation to have. <laughs> so, Todd, that's tell fun. everybody a little bit about who you are, where you came from, how you got into the insurance world and, and that kind of stuff. And then we're going to talk shop for a little while. All right. Perfect. Um, so I swear I was born into the insurance industry. My mother and father both grew up in insurance families. My mother's father had an insurance agency for a number of years. And my dad's family had an insurance agency for a number of years. So as a little kid, I used to come in the office and you know, when, when you're when you're figuring out when you're 16 and what car you want to drive, we actually used to be able to quote that out of a book back in the back in the early 90s. And uh, I swore to myself I was never going to sell insurance. Went and uh, spent a few years in the fast food industry, um, actually Arby's, as a matter of fact, ran a bunch of restaurants and kind of. <laughs> Dave, Dave loves Arby's. He's like the number one fan. Oh my of god, Arby's. I, ate, I ate Arby's for years. Years <laughs> so gross. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of Arby's <laughs> roast God. beef. Huge. I, I can't even tell you how many of those we cooked back in the day. It was crazy. Um, so, you know, we started having a family and yeah, the fast food industry takes a lot of time, a lot of hours, and I was just getting burned out. And so 
you know, my dad had uh, said, Todd, why don't you come back and work for the office for a while, give it a chance. And I came back here kind of kicking and screaming, not really intending to make this my full-time job. And that was in 2004 and today's 2020 and here we are. So I had the, uh, I had the opportunity to purchase the family business for my family back in 2012. Um, so now I'm the third generation owner of an insurance office in Western Iowa. And we've got two locations. You can only sling so many big Montanas, man. <laughs> you know, it's crazy. That's interesting. I didn't realize that you had done the fast food circuit, man. That's that's good. I have a fundamental belief that everybody should work in retail, restaurants, grocery stores, whatever, before they go do whatever they're going to do the rest of their life because – it teaches you a lot of skills about how to deal with the public at their absolute worst. I, the fast food industry is, is entirely overlooked. And I think sometimes people tend to look down on it. And you know, the reality is these, these fast food managers, if you're good and you can grow sales and you can manage a bottom line profit and work with people of you know the, the, the kids that are just coming out of high school to management that are making this their full-time career, you can make a great living, make a lot of money and have direct responsibility over P&L. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, I was 22 years old, making over well over $100,000 a year running a grocery store. And I think it's the same way, man. People tend to look at those jobs as being um, less than stellar or what. I mean, I, I, unless you've been in that position, it's kind of hard to under, understand, you know. But um, I, I used to just get I, I knew when I got called to the service desk that I had the 30 second walk to get there and not know what I was getting into. And once I got there, I had about 10 seconds to diffuse whatever was going on, you know, before it just got to be really bad. And, you know, I, the store that I ran originally was in a part of Birmingham, Alabama, that was not necessarily the prime location to be running, right? And we had a lot of diversity. There was a ton of racial tension in the store. And here I am, a young white kid that came in to be the store manager. And, you know, the deck was allegedly stacked against me from the very beginning of doing it. And so, um, thankfully, people saw that I was sincere, that I would bust my can, that I would work side by side with them, that I would take the time to learn their job and understand it, knew about their families, ask about their kids by name every day when I talked to them and all of those things. And it taught me a lot of skills about how to relate to people that I still use today. And I mean, I don't underestimate at all the value of me being in that position. You know, I'll never forget it. When they gave me the store, the guy that was the retail operations superintendent, Gary Doss, he may hear this because I'm connected to him on Facebook now, but you know, he told me, David, we're going to give you this store because we don't think you can screw it up any worse than it already is. And so there's a heck of a vote of confidence, right? <laughs> you know, but when you think about it and how I talk to people about my time in retail, you know, again, I think even in some cases, my own family doesn't really understand what it takes to have the total P&L responsibility that you have and the human resources and all of those things to successfully run one of those operations. But I essentially was 22 running a $15 million a year business for all practical purposes from wall to wall. And when I moved upstream, you go to super targets, those are over a hundred million a year. So, you know, that's nothing to sneeze at, 
you know, so the people, for those of you out there that want to go back and bitch about something that didn't go right in the store, don't talk down to that person because they probably got enough money to buy and sell you over three times over. You know, and that's what, that's how I used to get through to it. I used to sit there thinking, (laughs) you think that you're talking down to me, but I'm sitting here getting paid six figures to listen to this crap. And you're probably just in between shifts, getting ready to go to your second job because you're overextended on debt. So whatever. I mean, we could talk about that, you know, all the time, but I do think that it does a really good job of equipping you for how to diffuse things or how to you know deal with situations that we deal with now, because inevitably you have to learn to be quick on your feet, specifically at the point of sale. Right. So what's going on in COVID up in Iowa, man. I mean, I know that we've, you know, you and I go back and forth on social media and I, I see comments and things like that, but I, honestly, I haven't really seen you say too much about the current environment where you're at. I mean, how are you guys making it through professionally and what's that doing for the agency right now? So the, the town that we live in is, is about 8,200. And uh, if, if you've ever enjoyed a piece of bacon, it probably came from the, the, the packing plant we have here in Denison. Um, but you know, we shut. Who is it? Smithfield. Who, who is it? Uh, it's, yeah. I was going to yeah, Smithfield. Yeah. Well, obviously, well, I've enjoyed had, plenty of bacon in my day. Yeah. So, I mean, well, there was a, they had a rough go. The, the plants all over, I think, have had a rough go. I don't know that we've seen anything here in Denison to the level of some of the other plants around. Um, so there's 20,000 people in our county, approximately. We've had 400 cases. Uh, you know, it's it's panic more than anything. You know, it's interesting because I saw a thing that was posted. I'm in this group that Jason Denniston started for independent agents that like to barbecue and I want to be, part I need of to group. get, I, I was going to say, I need to add, I, I, when I recorded my podcast with him last week, I said, I needed to add several of you guys to it. And then I just forgot to do it. But um, he posted something in there that if you were able to slaughter and butcher your own hog, you could buy whole hogs for a hundred bucks a piece right now. That's insane. So the, the, if you're raising hogs, you're raising cattle right now. There's no money in it at the farmer level. Um, hmm. Every day they're losing money and nobody wants to buy their product from them. And even the, 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 the kill or the slaughter in our plant has been cut in half price. And as a matter of fact, the local, the local uh, uh, butcher shops here, they are booked out until October, what I last heard. I mean, they're going yeah, to kill it right now. I could I could very easily butcher the hog or you know do what I needed to do to get the meat off of it. Not a chance I'm slaughtering that thing. No way. My kids <laughs> yeah. would have nightmares for years to come. You know, just with, face Facebook Live that yeah, bad boy. Why does Daddy have a machete in the backyard chasing <laughs> a pig around? You know what I mean? But it, it, I just can't believe the value that you can get right now um, if you have the ability to do that. You know and it's going to be interesting to see what it does to the prices in the stores. I know ground beef is already through the roof. It's like over seven bucks a pound at this point. So yeah, and there's, I think great. there's a lot of banks from the the local producers in our area. They're not seeing $8 a pound. I mean, they sold at the low, um, the, the packers and the processors are the ones making the, the serious money right now. Yeah. That's the problem because they don't have the real capacity to process the way they used to. So it's taken, it's taken the supply out of the marketplace and the demands forcing the the rates up. So it's, it's, you know, and obviously people are going to buy it, you know, we're not going to stop eating hamburgers all of a sudden, 
but it's going to have an effect on a lot of different things. So I know that you go deep into workers comp and we've had plenty of conversations about that. How did you, how did you pick that or how did you decide that was a good way for you to go out and generate new business? That's a good question. Um, you know, I, with any, my, my, my path when I started was you knock on every door and write everything that you possibly can, personal, farm, commercial, and until you can actually generate some revenue where you can pay yourself and pay all the bills. And well, and based off the size of your town, what did you do after your first few months? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're, you're having to figure out ways to do business outside of your, your general vicinity that you're in. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. But- well, then even in small town, there's a lot of loyalty. I've been with so-and-so for so many years and I'll keep you in mind when they retire, but no matter what, you're not going to have a chance at that piece of business, no matter how good you are because of the, the loyalty and the friendship that they have in a small town. Um, so I just found out that I liked workers' compensation. I liked workers' compensation where I could help people just simply reduce costs. And most, like, it's sad to say, but most agents don't really take the time to dig in and do the mod master, uh, find out what's causing the pain points, find out why you've got a claim where... Uh, it's a $4,000 loss, but $300 of its lost time. And it's counting a hundred percent on their experience mod rather than 70, you know, reduce 70% because they didn't have a return to work program in place. And I mean, all these little things, when you sit down and you say, here's how that could have been done a little different. Here's how you can take better care of your employee. And here's how you save money in the long run and flow cash through to the bottom line. It's an easy conversation to have. It really it's is. It's extremely it's extremely easy. It's not overly difficult to learn either. You just have to be willing to do it. And that's the problem, right? I think that so many people are whoring themselves out to be insurance salesmen and sell products that they don't take the time to realize you really have to solve a problem. And I get on these kicks when I put my content out about different things that I think need to be addressed in the marketplace. And that's one of them right now. Everybody and their brother is going to be shopping, period. Whether they realize it now or not, every business is going to be vulnerable. And if you go in and all you're going to do is sell on price, you have a chance of writing business more than normal because you're going to have more people willing to hear what you have to say. But if you have somebody that understands a value proposition that is going to come in before or after you, you're going to get annihilated. You're going to absolutely get annihilated. And that's where I think agents need to shift their focus and and quit going out and focusing on price, 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 or policy, policy, policy. I was talking to somebody last week, and we, we were going back and forth about how agents will go into the point of sale and just do nothing. They'll, they'll walk in the door, and they immediately know the answer to everything, right? They Well, what you need here is you need this endorsement, or you need to go with this carrier, or you need... You haven't even taken the time to find out what's really going on yet, you know? And I think part of the issue is with the internet being able to give us so much information at our fingertips, we go in with preconceived notions and we try and make the narrative fit what we've researched ahead of time, as opposed to being um, trained enough mentally to know the information that we found in research, but to ask open-ended questions that either validate our suspicions or redirect them to what really is the cause of the issue. And I can tell you, I've made that mistake before myself earlier in my career where I would go in and I've done a bunch of research and I think I know what the problem is. And then all of a sudden when I get in there, they're like, well, you know, that could be what happens to a lot of places, but that's not necessarily what's going on here. Here's what's really happening in this company. 
And all of a sudden I'm dead in the water, right? Because I thought I knew what the issue was and I didn't. And I've gotten to the point now where I understand that if I frame my questions right based around what I've been able to learn through public domain research, I can validate or redirect, but I'm prepared now when I prepare for a meeting to go in and know if the answer is this, then I go this direction as opposed to, you know, just trying to force my own agenda going in. And I I think that we've trained people that that's what's going to happen is we're just going to go in 90 days before renewal. We're going to talk about the insurance portion of the relationship and that's it. You know, you win, you lose. It's the law of numbers at that point. And if you're, if you're an agent in the sales model, that's how you have to do it. Right. When you go over the technical side and the consulting side, it's a whole different conversation because you're not going in there to pitch insurance. You're going in there to seek to understand what it is they really need. You know, we, yeah, I agree. We picked up an account. Last year, uh, the, the, the CEO of the company called and said, uh, hey, we're taking bids. You want to be included in the, in the bids package? And uh, I said, sure, send us your stuff. We'll take a look at it. Five agents out there or five people competing on this account. And uh, they were with a very large national brokerage. And I get their stuff and their workers' compensations in the assigned risk pool. And it's crazy that nobody talks about that stuff. It, it, it's just like completely left alone. Is, it, is Iowa the same as Florida where it's state mandated rates? So it's state mandated rates for the, the, the assigned risk pool or the non-assigned risk pool. Um, the yeah. assigned risk pool is, you know, 25% higher than the standard market. So I just said, Hey, I'd like to come up and talk to you. Can we do that? You know, back when you could go inside and meet people in person. And, uh, we sat down with, uh, the CEO and the CFO. And I just said, talk to me about why you're sending this out to five people. What are you hoping to do? And why are you in the assigned risk pool? And the CEO says to me, what do you mean assigned risk pool? (laughs) It's crazy. And I said, you're in the assigned risk pool. You're paying 25% higher, you know, than you should. And I walked through the whole narrative with him. And I said, your real concern should be why you're in the assigned risk pool. And how are you going to find a broker to take you out of there? Because you could save a lot of money simply by just going to a standard market. It was a formality to get the the board to approve our AOR after that because nobody mm-hmm. not not one agent not one other agent out of the five had even talked to him about how you should get out of the assigned risk pool or even put forth a risk management plan to help monitor their claims do some training do something did they have a bunch of claims or or what was what was going on with it they did have a bunch of claims and uh, they were high dollar claims a lot of back injuries because they were lifting people the wrong way it's it's a it's a public transportation company so. Mm. Uh, a lot of that was just just simple training that that they needed. Out, out of curiosity, why was a public transportation company lifting? People? I'm sorry, they, just they, su- suplexing people. They, they transport. They Get transport in. People. Okay, there we so, go. It's I, was, a I was a little bit lost there. Transportation company. Yeah, like I was taking them say, to and from doctors' appointments and whatnot. Yeah, nobody, yeah. nobody ever lifts me when I get in public transportation. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, uh, you, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, man. And, you know, it's interesting because I was in one of the Facebook groups for agents and there was a guy that basically was, I don't know if he was looking for advice. Sometimes people aren't necessarily clear in exactly what their point is when they post on social media, but essentially it was, it was very similar. I've got a meeting, there's four other brokers involved and I've worked really hard to get in front of these people. And now I found out that they're talking to four other people. There's only a limited number of markets, you know, 
what what should I do or whatever? And I don't even know that they even ask what they should do. And immediately, everybody and their brother jumps on the bandwagon. Kill the meeting. You don't compete against other people. Blah, 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 blah. And my answer was completely different. I'm like, dude, take the first meeting. You know, take the first meeting. If you get in there and in 10 minutes you decide, okay, this guy is or this lady, whatever I'm dealing with, is not going to make it's not going to make sense for me to work with them. You can decide that then. But what you're doing is you're um, completely eliminating your ability to go in and demonstrate value and to educate that prospect. And it's crazy that you even bring this up because literally when I got to the work this morning, I recorded a video on why we have to educate our prospects. We talk all the time about educating our clients on what they, we need from them to do business with us, but nobody takes the time to educate a prospect about what it takes to do business with us. And you have to do that. And my whole point in, 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 in responding to this guy was take the meeting and educate them as to why market selection doesn't make sense. You know, competitive bidding doesn't make sense. Broker selection makes sense. Let all of us pitch to you. Let's talk about how we're going to do uh, what we do for you. And then pick which one, which horse you want to ride. Let them handle the negotiation and placement of coverage. Because right now, you got five people that are going to be in there blindly competing against each other in limited markets with no understanding of coverage terms or price that the other people have. And no offense to you, Mr. Prospect, but you're the least educated on this process of what happens on our end of it. But yet you're controlling the whole thing. And you're not putting yourself in a position to get the ultimate success at the end because of how you're going about it. Here's why we we recommend. And then just walk them through and educate it. Guess what? One of two things is going to happen. They're going to agree with you or they're not. Newsflash, people, not everybody's going to agree with you. But it's just like the quote from Wayne Gretzky, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Why aren't you going at least to the first meeting? You know, I'm a huge fan of not wasting my time. But I'm going to go to the first meeting every time because you never know what's going to come from it. So you ended up getting that deal. I mean, what? how's it worked out since? I mean, I'm assuming that things are going well. Did you get them out of the assigned risk? Not goal? yet. It's a tough class of business, and we're still having a few claims. But uh, we've got a path in place, and we've got a plan in place with the ultimate goal. And we all know what the end result's going to be of that. And that, that's, that's all I told them. Let's let's find a way to reduce cost simply. I mean, simply just by getting you out of the assigned risk pool, let alone the claims process and everything else that goes along with that. And if we can find a dividend, a carrier that has a dividend plan, they'll save even more money. So it's, uh, you know, but going back to your point, taking the first meeting, there are five of us. I just wanted to go up and find out where their head was at, what exactly it is they were looking for, and if we're a good fit. And not every not every meeting we have is going to end up in sale. And you, like you said, not every person is going to agree with what we want to do or the way that we want to do business. We still have people that we come across that want to shop every single year. And the disservice they're doing to themselves in the marketplace, they don't even know. I mean, because so many carriers will see that same submission year after that? year after year, and it's an auto decline. When when they're doing that, when when they have that kind of behavior, what how do you explain that to them to try to get them to understand that you know why that's such a disservice to them? How do I explain it? Yeah, um, we simply talk about how underwriters. So our pitch for most people is, if we're going to market you, we're going to take you on as a new client. We're going to go to market for you the first year, and outside of that, we don't intend to remarket you 
uh, every year, maybe three or five, but we're going to keep you with the exact same carrier, not only to build loyalty, but to build longevity. And I want my carriers to know that when I come to them with a piece of business, I want them to be as aggressively priced as possible. And I really want them to go after it if it's a good fit. And I tell them, or I tell the prospect, if I'm going to send every single piece of business every single year to that underwriter who's already overworked, underpaid, doesn't have enough hours in the day, when she sees your piece of business and maybe it's got some claims or maybe it's not in their appetite, they're just going to auto decline and move on. As opposed to, mm-hmm. I can't sell an account to a company that markets every single year, every single time. It, it's too much work. You know, it, it's crazy because the average decision maker has no idea that they are damaging their own reputation in the marketplace. And I, I have that exact same conversation all the time. They don't realize, you know, and, and I, I just ask them, look, let me ask you a question. You do understand that if you have 20 different underwriters look at your account every single year, 19 of them lose. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's just the way that it is. And I was I was having a conversation with somebody and, and I told them, you know, one of the one of the best places that I get referrals is from underwriters that have lost. Now, I realize that the carrier people that may or may not be listening to this don't want to hear that. But here's a fun fact. You have an underwriter that sharpened the pencil and feels like they've got the best program, best pricing and everything. And all of a sudden they don't get that business. They have really long memories. So they're either going to auto decline you going forward, or they're going to do what I'd like them to do and pick up the phone and call me and say, Hey, I just quoted this account. I didn't get it. I really would like for you to go after this with reckless abandon, whatever you need, you let me know. I will write this next year. Just get the audience and go do it. And agents don't, I mean, maybe they do, maybe they don't know that's what's going on. But I mean, they got to quit gaming the system with these underwriters because at some point you're going to need some of the ones that aren't willing to entertain the opportunity anymore because of how you've presented it. Most underwriters I know are charged with growing their book of business every year. And when you build that relationship with them, it's it's sad for me to hear that so many shops send them a piece of business saying, hey, I need you to block the market, send me a declination letter. I mean, that's that's just the game that gets played all the time. But there's a lot of cases where that underwriter really wants to go after and write that piece of business and may do a better job than the current carrier. But some of these large ones are just, you know, blocking the market and hurting the client in the long run. You got to take care of the people. You got to take care of the clients. And the period, end of story. You know- Yeah. And it's crazy because, you know, again, when you go into the whole, there's going to be four or five other agents. Newsflash again, people, I absolutely love it. If you're going to be comparing me to four or five other agents, that's exactly what I want you to do. I want you to let me come in and talk about my value proposition. And if you buy into what I say and what we're capable of doing for you and the results we've gotten for other people, we're going to win way more than we lose. I mean, that's the nature of the beast, right? With us, because in you're you're in the same boat, Todd. When you go in with the consultative approach, and you're having you're talking about return to work and the different things that you talk about that are low hanging fruit from our model and the way we go after things, you're going to differentiate yourself in such a way from the status quo that they're either going to immediately gravitate towards you and buy into what you're saying and realize that you know what you're talking about, or they're going to think you're absolutely nuts and they're going to continue to do things the way they've always done. Guess what? 
either way, they're doing me a favor. I either get the business or they remove me from consideration. And I didn't want to have them as a client anyhow, because it was just going to be the same thing year after year after year. And it's amazing how many of those people reach back out if if I choose to decline to participate or they just decide that they wanted to continue with the status quo. Guess what? That year they have another bad year. Who's the first person in the Rolodex they call? Maybe I should have talked to that guy that came in and was talking to me about total cost of risk. We should talk about that a little more because I don't think it's hard even in our agency to go to that meeting, realize they're not a good fit, and then walk away. I took a call last night from a guy that had posted in IAOA. Um, he posted that he had an issue. He needed some help. He had a he, he specifically wanted to talk to a, a, an agent that had experience with accounts of $500,000 or more in premium. I saw that post, and yeah. Somebody tagged me. I answered, and I ended up he, – he shot me a private message, and I spent about 30 minutes on the phone with him. And – the long and the short of this is he. this guy works for a company that has some ridiculous number of locations worldwide. Yeah, the, it, it, it's uh, restaurants, probably something like Benihana or something like that. It's not, but it, it, it was teppanyaki style, table side cooking and all of that. And everything boiled down to the fact that this client came to him and said that they didn't want him to, they they weren't happy with him. They didn't feel like he was bringing value and he was concerned he was going to lose the account. Well, when I get on the phone with him, the value that the client wanted him to bring was they wanted to negotiate. They wanted his agency to negotiate the terms of a lease that they were working on in Manhattan that required them to carry a $10 million umbrella. They didn't feel like they should carry a $10 million umbrella and they didn't want to pay for it. So they expected him as the agent to negotiate with the landlord to remove the requirement for a $10 million umbrella. And so he's explaining this to me. And I said, listen, you know, out of curiosity, have you explained to them that that's actually a relatively low requirement for Manhattan? I mean, when I've had clients who have done business with the city of New York, the lowest they'll take for an umbrella is 25 million. I mean, it's it's crazy. And I said, you know, what's driving this? And he said, well, you have to understand there's cultural differences. This is an Asian-based company. They don't view insurance as something that's of any kind of value to them. They buy it because they have to, and that's it. And I said, so they're under the impression that if they have a claim for a million dollars, that no one is going to sue them for more than that million dollars. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, and we started going through all of this stuff. And and at the end of the conversation, I said, look, man, I said, after talking to you, it's really obvious to me, you know exactly what you should do. I'm not telling you that it's easy for you to do it, but these people don't value your advice. They don't value your professional opinion. And they're simply wanting to buy a product from you or not, and, and, and not have to comply with the lease requirements. Truthfully, you should have been offering them a $10 million umbrella to begin with and not hinge it on the lease because that's what they probably need based on the number of locations they have. And then he proceeds to tell me that, well, there's a different agent that handles their locations on the West Coast. And they're t- and I'm like, dude, come on, man. You know, what are you doing? And I re- and this was a huge chunk. It, it, number one, it blew my mind. It was a single location and the GL on this restaurant was $150,000 in premium for a single hmm. location. 
Uh-huh. And, but but I, I, t- I told him, and he said, that's standard. That's standard for class of business and specifically where they're at. And I said, I realize that I can sit back with no emotional attachment whatsoever and give you completely unbiased advice. And it's very easy for me to do that. It's not my agency that would be losing the revenue. But at the end of the day, you just need to go to these people and say, look, this is what you should have because this is the correct thing for you to do. It has nothing to do with your lease requiring you to have it. I'm not in a position where I can agree with having this removed because I would be giving you bad advice. And I told him, they're the first ones that are going to have you negotiate to get rid of that. And I said, have you ever offered it to them before? Because you know, it, my concern became, okay, number one, if you've never offered them an umbrella before and told them they needed a 5 or $10 million umbrella because of their expansion plans across the US, you are missing your duty to offer. And if something were to happen, they could come back against you and say, you know, you should have offered us an umbrella and you have no evidence that you did and no evidence that they rejected it. And I said, but you kind of flip that to make it even worse when you consciously make a decision to go negotiate to have what you know is the correct coverage for them removed from a lease requirement. Now it's like you made a conscious effort to help them not have that. And you're going to be not looked upon very favorably if anything goes down. And by the way, if you think these people are going to step aside and stand up and say, nope, we told him we didn't want it. He did everything he could to have it removed. We're going to stand behind him 100% because he did exactly what we asked. You're kidding yourself. you know. And I think that we get clouded that way, man. Agents are so clouded by the premium and the commission that they don't make good decisions. And I asked him, I said, if you step back right now and you looked at every other account in your book of business, is this the biggest one? And he said, yeah, by a landslide. I said, okay, if you look at all of your book of business, do these people match the same value system as all of your other clients? Do they respect your, your um, professional opinion the same way that your other clients do? And every answer was no, 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 no. And I said, why are you wasting your time, man? You're just getting paid more for bigger headaches. And I would imagine that the profitability that you have on this account, by the time you look at how much work you have to do to try and keep them happy, makes no sense at all for you to represent that. Figure out who you're going to represent and only represent that type of client, period. You know, I did a, did a video and I use the example all the time. Anytime I go to a prospect meeting, I envision a conference room with an empty chair at the table. All the other chairs are filled by my book of business. Does the person I talk to in this prospect meeting deserve that empty chair at the table with everybody else that I represent? If the answer is yes, then we can have a really good meeting. If the answer is no, we don't bring them into the agency. And Kyle will tell you, Every single account that I have said, literally, these are good. This is going to be a problem. Is always a problem. Always. Yep. We all know it. And, and even as much as I'd like to think that we have some relatively refined processes, we still make we still fall into that trap occasionally. But you can't let yourself be clouded by that stuff. And I think that's where agents really screw up is they don't have the balls to say no. I agree. I, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's tough when you're looking at, you know, what, what they're going to be bringing in versus matching it against what your value prop is, but it's something you have to do if you want to, if, if you want to continue to grow and do it the right way. It's not always an easy decision to make, but I a hundred percent agree with you. I, I, I did tag on to that too. I mean, I think in your book, you talk about find, define who your client is. And when you're young and you start out or you need revenue, you take on anything that you can in hindsight, that's the worst thing you can do. Be laser focused in your approach. Find people that you want to do business with. 
Uh, I can think in my experience of two times, two times that I, I compromised my judgment to write a sale. And both of those cases, I got burned and I got burned big. Mm -hmm. And never, never yeah, again I, as I go forward. I mean, take the first meeting. If they don't see you as valuable, if they don't like what you have to say, that's okay. It's all right to leave and walk out that door. Find people. I, I like working. I, I enjoy what I do. I enjoy the clients that I have. Life's too short to work with people you don't want to work with. <laughs> True. Well, you know, that, and that's the beauty of what we do, right? That's the difference between what we do in retail is in retail, you can't really control who walks through your front door. In this industry, we have every ability to do that. And that's that's why I'm such a huge proponent of defining who your ideal prospect is going to be and then only populating your pipeline with those types of accounts. You eliminate all of the ability that you have to make that bad decision because you've, you know, either qualified or disqualified people before you ever put them into the the sales uh, funnel. And I think that's a, that's a, there's no reason for that not to happen, right? We all know it. We, we know what that's going to look like from the second you engage with somebody the first time. Absolutely. And I have no, yep. I, I have no problem telling them. Like I, I, at this point, my time is valuable to me. And if I go in there and somebody's going to, you know, give me some smart remark about, well, we'll just see how good your pricing is or whatever else. I'll just get up and leave and say, listen, I, I apologize, but apparently I, I owe you an apology for not doing a good job of demonstrating what we really do. Uh, while price is certainly a factor in total cost of risk, it's not the one thing we focus on. If all you're concerned about is your insurance premiums, you should probably talk to an insurance salesman and not a risk manager. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they and and they do, but it, it's it's a never ending you know cycle of the same thing. So. You know, what have you guys done? So, you know, navigating COVID, obviously, you know, you made the comment earlier that you can't go out and, and meet with people in person and all of that. And certainly we've experienced the same. What have you done to try and generate new business revenue in the downtime? So for so for us out here, uh, Western Iowa, we made the decision probably two years ago to really kind of invest in technology. Um, it was really easy for everybody to transition to work from home. We've all got laptops, um, can work remotely. Um, we went into COVID probably with a three to four week backlog of work that we've been able to clear up and get through and push through now. And what we're internally working on is refining some of our processes, the way that we do things. And uh, I, I'm pleased to announce that uh, this week, we actually just hired a full-time marketing person for our office to build our online social there media. You, go. I, you know, they say treat technology as a team member. I'm going to treat marketing as a team member. And I want that person to be on there making sure our social media presence is 100%. We're doing stuff locally. We're doing stuff regionally. Um, and uh, we're doing SEO, Google AdWords. I want to use our website to a better capability than what we currently have. I want to make sure that people know that they could submit requests via our website. Um, I really want to streamline that and, and target those type of people for TAM's agency. Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting because this is the absolute perfect time if you want to work on marketing projects or building your online presence. I, I joke with Ryan Hanley about it and tell him that, you know, this is the absolute worst time possible for you to have started a scratch agency unless. You're Ryan Hanley 
with a ridiculously strong content game, right? Well, his content so, is off the charts lately, man. He just cranks them out daily. Well, and that's the whole thing, right? And so that's that's what I told Ryan when, you know, and we talk several times a week, actually, you know, probably daily. But, um, you know, I told him, I said, just stay the course, dude. Right now, what you're doing is you're creating the perception six months from now, the perception will be, oh, yeah, Rogue Risk, I know them. You know, and I mean, it, that's not a ho-hum deal. That's a really hard thing to do when you're starting a scratch agency that's a brand that, that people don't necessarily know about. But if you can if you can get that stuff out there and have it, uh, you know, being warehoused on your website, you're doing nothing except investing in the future at a time where everybody else is busy, you know, spouting off the Zywave content on COVID. And it's literally hundreds of agents with the same slicks and everything else that they're putting out there. And that's why I think that he's, you know, doing the right thing. He's, I hope he's doing the right thing. He's following my advice a lot of the time. And so I'm, I'm trusting that it's going to work, but I mean, you know, he's taught me a lot in terms of how to streamline content production. Right. So for me, I had to, we've been busy. Like I've been busy since I opened the doors of Florida risk. And the, the number one excuse that everybody gives is I don't have time. I don't have time. I don't have time. Guess what? I don't have time. And it's not that I don't have time because I'm doing non-generating, non-revenue generating tasks. I don't have time because we're writing business and I don't need the content to go out and generate leads for me. But I also understand I need to have that because at some point the well's going to dry up or at least it's going to slow down from where it is right now. And I need to be able to have that kind of presence to where I, you know, even if I just go in and talk to somebody and they say, Hey, I have a problem with this. I could say, Oh, I wrote an article about that a couple months ago. I'll send you the link when I get back. Boom. Instant credibility. And so Mm -hmm. one of the things that I've learned in the way that I'm doing this, and by the way, if you're an agency trying to figure out how to do content, you need to stop everything you're doing on the side, put the candy crush down and listen to what I'm saying right now, because this is extremely important. I learned real quick with, you know, from what Ryan taught me that it makes all the sense in the world to lead with video. And I know that you have got a top shelf video rig for you, you know, in your office. And, you know, what I found out, Todd, is that you don't have to have all the time in the world to do the blogging and everything else. So I'm leading everything that I do from a content standpoint, 100% with video, because if I do the video first, it's easy for me to do. I can knock out, you know, three and four minute videos. I can do, you know, I don't want to get overboard, but I could do five or six of them a day. It doesn't take me an incredibly long amount of time to edit them in Adobe Premiere. I upload them to Clipscribe. You know, if I'm too backed up to do that, I'll send them to Splashio and they'll do all the transcriptions for me. But I can send them over to Clipscribe and Clipscribe will put the subtitles in. I can format everything and I do it in real time. With Splashio, it's typically a 24-hour turnaround time. But then I can also take that video and I can send it to Rev. And for $1.25 a minute, I can have a human being get me 99% accuracy on taking all of the wording from that video and putting it into a Word document for me. So I have an automatic blog post. So literally, I do the video, I upload it and do the things that I do on the different websites. And by the time I'm done, I, I I get the the word doc back. I throw in the sub you know the the subheadings. I title it, 
I put it into Grammarly to make sure that it's going to, um, you know, it's grammatically correct because how I talk and how I write are two completely different things. But that's how Hanley is getting that much content out there is because he understands the systems. Well, so I finally decided I'm really going to hammer down and, and produce content during COVID. So I have done a ton of videos on stuff for Florida Risk that aren't even anywhere close to going on the website yet because I'm not going to put them up all at one time. Google doesn't like that. But I had like 50 videos transcribed into blog posts for 150 bucks, and I had them all back in under an hour. That's crazy. That's nuts, man. So it's instant content strategy. If people aren't doing that, then take, you know, agents are cheap, the majority of them, right? Anybody that's in killing commercial, not cheap. And, and I know that. And that's one of the things about creating a community and making sure you have like-minded people in that community. But if agents understand, you know, there's a lot of people here, $1.25 a minute, that's crazy. That's And they're going to start running the numbers of how much that actually equates to an hour. Well, I'm going to run the math for you. It's $75 an hour. I don't work for $75 an hour. I'm not, I'm not ever going to work for $75 an hour. So why are you, you know? Don't don't sit here and try and be smarter than than the system. You know, if you can get blog posts transcribed, so all you have to do is put that stuff in there. Guess what happens? You actually do it. You actually create the blog content and get it up on your site, and it starts to work for you. So for me, that's a huge thing, and that's one of the that's one of the reasons why you see Hanley churn out as much as you do is because he knows all of these little tricks along the way. And trust me, I've been taking my fair share of notes. I can help him on some things, but the dude's a wizard when it comes to content production. I hope everybody who's listening just wrote that down. You just gave step-by-step instructions on how to create content and how to do it fast and how to do it cheap. And uh, it's it's funny. The other day I was doing some research on YouTube for workers' compensation just to see what type of videos are out there. And most of the videos that I find on YouTube are from attorneys uh, telling you how to get more money for your workers' compensation claim. Mm-hmm. And there's Hanley. From 2012, working for the Murray Group, talking about workers' compensation in New York. Still, eight years later, people are seeing that. I'm seeing it in Iowa. Well, you know, and the thing, and, and the funny thing is, you know, Ryan Ryan has the quote that he's used plenty of times that says, "For every blog post you write, you've basically hired a salesman to work for you on the internet, 24 hours a day." So you write 50 blog posts, you have 50 salespeople that are out there working for you 24 hours a day. And, you know, the thing is, we could, I could stand on the mountaintops and give everybody this step-by-step instruction. Unfortunately, this is what I know about our industry. They're not going to do it. They're not going to do it. They're not going to take the time to have a content strategy. They're not, it's not going to be well thought out. A couple of people may go ahead and try and do things here or there. But at the end of the day, the majority of them are always going to revert back to the same BS that we've been doing for decades in our industry. Make 100 phone calls, get 50 people to answer, to get 20 people to meet with you, 10 people let you present, and you get two pieces of business. So they're just going to keep making 100 phone calls to get two pieces of business. They don't do anything at all to stack the deck in their favor. And I think that's a huge miscalculation, and it's something that agencies miss all the time. And kudos to you, man. Having a full-time marketing person to kind of spearhead that is a is a really wise decision on your part. I don't have a full-time marketing person, I don't know that I would ever find one that would make me happy, to be honest with you, just because I enjoy the marketing piece so much. That's my favorite part about what we do. I can talk about the coverage and I can, you know, 
enjoy the sales process, but I really like the marketing piece and seeing something that you can create from nothing and then turn people into fans or followers or whatever else as a result of the stuff that you've produced. That's really where I get my most joy out of my job, honestly. Like when somebody makes a video like the one you made a slide to the front door in your socks because I sent you a you know, sent you a package that I created, that makes my day, man. I could have closed a hundred thousand dollar revenue account that day and I actually get more of a kick out of the fact somebody posted a video over something like that than I do the, the money. And I mean, it's just the way that I'm wired, but agencies, you know, they don't take that kind of stuff seriously. Automation's the same way, right? I can talk to people about HubSpot till I'm blue in the face. I can tell them about all of the things it does to make sure things don't slip through the cracks. I can talk about how we use the automations for onboarding and all of those things. And then what happens? Well, I'm not going to spend that much money on it. Well, okay, don't. Don't spend that much money on it because what I'm doing is I'm replacing four bodies with one product. And I'm not a huge fan of removing the human element from my agency, but let's face it, there's certain tasks that a computer is more reliable and more productive on, and you need to do that. But when somebody sees a price tag, they don't ever stop to think about what that it's an actual investment. They mm-hmm. look at it as a cost, mm-hmm. right? And it's not. It's not an expense line. There's an ROI there. I, I think COVID is going to be the great separator for a lot of insurance agents. And either you need to double down on marketing and technology and automation, or you're going to be closing the doors in a couple of years. I mean, mm. March 17th was the day that Iowa, that the state of Iowa shut down. And I think that was the day that forever our industry changed. Most of my clients have now locked their doors and put in barriers. I mean, if you're going to go out and market and cold call and walk into somebody's business, you're not getting past the front door right now. Everything is locked up. And so I think there needs to be a natural shift to technology, automation, online social presence, video, getting in front of people via video, whether it's Zoom or Loom or whatever it is. Um, that's how we're going to attract new clients in the, the upcoming years. It's not going to be the guy that sits behind his desk waiting for the doorbell to ring or somebody to walk in the door because that's not what's happening anymore. That, that end, nope. And people are, here's the other thing, people are naturally fearful. They don't want to go out right now. They're, right. they're scared of bringing somebody into the office or the secretary, the receptionist or that gatekeeper. You're not getting past that. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, you know, what better way to generate new business than educating people through webinars or whatever else? I mean, we've done webinars since COVID started that have had several hundred people on Mm -hmm. them. What yeah, other the me- amount of people you can get in front of in the amount of time, it's not even close. I mean, I could go out and do 100 drops in a week and it's still exponentially more of my time than getting on a webinar and, and you know being able to reach a hundred, couple hundred people at one time. And then posting that webinar online, putting a password out right. there and just having people watch it and feed over it. Exactly. Yeah, Kyle, I like what he's talking about. I need to give this guy a call because he's telling me something that my current agent isn't because they're not doing that type of online social media or social mm-hmm. media. Well, and it's crazy. So I actually, we've, we did that, right? We did a a webinar on ways to cut costs inside of your workers' compensation program. We recorded it. We created a landing page uh, where you have to register to go watch the recorded version of it, ran some display ads around it. And, you know, I get a couple of notifications a day of people who are registering. And guess what? It dumps into our CRM. They automatically get enrolled in a drip campaign. And we know to follow up on those people, you know, because 
they obviously were interested in what it was we were talking about. It, I mean, it, again, this is basic blocking and tackling. I think part of it goes back to one of the things that I always say, though, about agents are either or typically one of two people. They're either technicians or they're salespeople. And, you know, the salespeople really have no product knowledge. They can sell you anything, but then they hope that they can deliver on it on the back end. And technicians sit and talk so much that they end up talking themselves out of deals. If you're a hybrid and you have the ability to be a salesperson with some level of product knowledge, you're going to kill it. But I think what happens is agents that are out there that are going to be your more aggressive salespeople probably don't have the, uh, the the product knowledge and the technical ability to sit down and host an hour webinar on ways to cut costs inside of workers' compensation, or they just don't feel comfortable doing it. And so they don't. And, you know, I will happily continue to do that as much as possible on a variety of topics, because again, while it seems like doing the, the live webinar is a daunting task to, you know, to plan for it, market it, get people on there, you only have to do it once. Then it's recorded, mm-hmm. you know, then move on to the next thing, move on to cyber liability, move on to indemnification agreements and why those are going to be so important going forward. And all of the things that go into that, you know, again, it's content. It's another type of content. You can even take that same webinar and create a series of blog posts around it. I mean, there, you, you can't even, you can't make this up. I could transcribe it and turn it into an ebook. You know, the, it, I could keep going on and on and on, but all of that to say, Kudos to you for putting the money into to marketing, man. I mean, it's, I think it's a good spend for you and understanding, you know, from a distance, you know, the limited opportunity that you have geographically, you're going to be able to take that and really stack the, the deck in your favor across a variety of, of places that you may not even currently have representation. We're hoping so. We're hoping so. And I like the idea of bringing it internal. And so we can build that person around our culture and our philosophies and what we're looking for rather than uh, hiring a third party that it's a part-time job for them. I want this to be a full-time mm-hmm. lead generation. Understand us. And I'm going to tell point. you, I'm going to tell you what, man, the best success that I've had um, in, in doing some of that stuff has been with interns. So I had a young lady that was an intern for us last summer that just absolutely crushed it. Absolutely crushed it. Um, marketing major and wanted to have real world application. And we basically taught her how to build a vertical market from the ground up. And she executed on all of it to perfection. And the labor itself isn't overly expensive. But if you invest in somebody like that, you know, especially early in their college career, you may get them back on, on the, the winter break. You may get them back the next summer. You very well may get them full time when they come out of college and you already know how to work with them and they know how to work with you. So, you know, for people that are out there looking for economical ways to put together a marketing strategy, do not under any circumstances undervalue a college intern. And here's another thing. They can relate to the people their age. They can relate to a generation that I may be one rung of the ladder removed from, you know what I mean? And so I always liked to run stuff by her and get her perspective because I would change some of my framing and some of my messaging just based on how people today receive information versus how I think they should receive it. Yep. It's lit fam. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, (laughs) yeah. So, I mean, 
I think that I know you've got some other stuff in the works. We're not going to talk about that today. I want you to have that up and running and extremely successful, and then we'll have you back to talk about it. I'd love to talk about that. I'd love to talk about just automation, technology, the way things are done in general. Uh, You know, going to Iowa a couple of years ago, you just see how it opens up your eyes to the way things are currently being done. And I know you're tech savvy with HubSpot and how you built out that automation. But man, there's there's so much out there that we as agents can do, not only to change the dynamic and create a better experience, but just make our offices more efficient and more automated. Um, you know, I, I bang my head against the wall sometimes just on how how hard it is to do business with some of our carriers and some of our people. And I know that you've got it much uh, streamlined a lot more than I do. Yeah, I mean, it's always a work in progress. We've made some strides there, but there's always a lot of room for improvement. And I mean, as we continue to grow on the personal line side, that presents its own set of challenges because it's it's unfamiliar territory for me. It's not necessarily um, something that I try to devote a ton of my attention to just because the revenue is not the same as what it is on the stuff I really like to write. And, you know, it's also a huge opportunity for you to make a mistake because if you're writing personal lines, right, you will have a lot of volume there and you've got to have things in place. And that's one of the things that attracted me to HubSpot was our ability to have ticketing systems put in um, and workflows that are triggered based based on uh, things going through various deal stages and all of that. And, you know, funny enough, the automation piece, the onboarding piece, the client experience piece and all of that, is what I'm going to talk about in the, the next book that I'm writing right now. You know, it's, it's all about what happens once the deal's done. Um, there's a lot of things that have to happen. You know, what do you do from an account rounding standpoint? How do you handle referrals? How do you handle your retention? How do you, um, you know, how do you onboard these people to make them, uh, you know, feel like they're the most important client in your book of business and there's ways to do that with automation mm-hmm. um, and, and ways to do it very effectively. And, and it's very, very consistent. You know, my biggest concern is always somebody wanting to add or drop a vehicle or add or drop a, a driver. And somehow that slips through the cracks. Well, if you've got that set up where tickets are automatically assigned when a web form comes in making that request, you have a paper trail at that point that you can make sure those things are actually getting done. And it, it, it's a, a good deal. Is the next book going to have any pictures? Um, I could probably have Ethan draw something really, really, really special for you. Sweet. All I'll right. I'll pick it up then. So listen, we're, we're at an hour. Um, we try and cut it off at an hour. Todd, you know, I'm sure that people will appreciate the level of intelligence that you brought to the podcast. You definitely up to the bar there. And just your general thought process, um, how do they get a hold of you? Uh, you can always find me on any social media, it seems like. But ttamsatamsagency.com is my email address or I'm on Facebook um, or my website, tamsagency.com. Folks, if you have questions about workers' compensation, if you have questions about automation and technology, there are a few in this industry that will be as good of a mentor to you as what Mr. Tams will be. I sincerely mean that when I say that Todd and I have become fast friends over the course of the last year. And, you know, he's one of a handful that are in the inner, the inner, inner circle with me. And, um, you know, I appreciate that friendship and appreciate the fact that I know that we could pick up the phone and call each other at any time with any kind of a question and have a very uh, good conversation and figure out a way to solve a problem that otherwise might not be able to be solved. So if you have questions or you 
just want somebody that you want some advice from, this guy is definitely somebody you need to align yourself with. Thank you for that, David. I can say the same thing about you and what you're doing. I love the education that you bring to our industry. It just between the, the Power Producers podcast and the Killing Commercial and your voice on IOA, I love it. You're helping educate a whole new set of agents out there and bringing workers' compensation to the forefront, which is great for everybody. Well, and I appreciate that. With that, we're going to wrap it up. Right. Todd, thanks for, for hanging with us. Um, it's been a pleasure. Can't wait for this episode to come out. And I also can't wait to have you back because I know you've got big things going on that we didn't talk about today. And that's going to be wildly successful. And that's going to happen in the very near future. It's, it's coming together rather quickly. And there'll be a lot of, a lot of exciting things happening in the next 30 to 45 days. Awesome, man. I couldn't be happier for you. You've been listening to the Power Producers Podcast. You can follow Killing Commercial Insurance on Facebook and YouTube. And if you want to take your game to the next level, next level, check out our book, The Extra Two Minutes, and our website, killingcommercial.com. Killing Commercial.